Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. How are you guys this morning? <laughs> good, good, tired. It was, a, it was a night game. I get it. I was there. Um, so uh, uh, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors around here. Excited to get to open up uh, God's Word. We're going to be in 1 Samuel. So if you've got your Bibles, then uh, flip there. Uh, we'll also put the, the verses up on the screen. Um, uh, one thing, I wanted to make one more announcement too, and this is a total praise God. And as I'm getting to sit here and be led in worship uh, by this team just thinking about the faithfulness of God. We've got a guy on our staff. He is the director of operations around here. His name is Francis Janun. He's up there. Give Francis a hand. <laughs> Francis is, uh, he's the guy who actually gets things done around here. Without Francis, this ministry would be a whole bunch of people sitting around in a room being like, man, wouldn't it be cool to like, praise God in this way, or wouldn't it be cool to minister, and we would just sit in a room and talk about stuff, and then he's the action of a ministry that is called to actually put things into action, uh, and so we're super thankful for him. He's got a sweet wife, Keely. They've got two daughters, uh, Rin and Faye, and a couple of weeks ago, uh, his baby boy showed up early, Dax, praise God for that, but Dax was pretty early, and, uh, and some of you guys were in the loop on this, and we're praying for him, and we're super grateful for that. Dax was in the NICU for a while, um, but this last week, he got to come home, and we are so thankful for that. He is home with mom and dad and sisters. And so, uh, man, if you see Francis, tall fella, great hair, just give him a hug and say praise God. Um, we are excited that Dax is home, and we love you guys, and we love your family. Um, all right, we are jumping into 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 8. So if you're new with us. I love that you're here. What we do here in our sermons is we just walk through the Bible. So this semester we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel and we're just going to walk through it uh, a chapter at a time or a section at a time or kind of a story at a time. Um, one of the things that we're going to see today is something that I think answers the question for us, uh, helps us answer the question of how do we know if the decisions we're making, if the choices that we're choosing are actually going to end up well for us. Because really, we all function consciously and subconsciously based on this premise of, you know, our, our life and the decisions we make. We make those decisions because we think they're going to end well for us, right? We don't make decisions thinking, oh, this is going to be a horrible decision. We make them, even if they're split, like even when we're wrong and they turn out really bad, still driving us to make that decision is some gauge. Sometimes that gauge is off. O oftentimes it is, and we'll see that here in 1 Samuel. But some gauge that says, okay, this is going to be what I want. This is going to help get me what I want. Let me give you some examples. Uh, school, right? If you're in school, the classes you take, most likely the majority of the classes you take are leading you towards accomplishing something, right? If you have never played the flute before in your life, you most likely will not sign up for like an advanced flute intensive, right? That's not a class that you're going to be like, you know what? I do want to take the advanced flute intensive if you've never played flute in your life because that's not going to end well for you. You're going to flunk out of that and you're going to waste money. Um, the other thing is relationships, right? Relationships are something that you don't get into a relationship thinking, well, this is going to be a disaster. 
In fact, show of hands, who here now is currently dating somebody that they think is the worst? Anybody? In one of these services, somebody's going to raise their hand. Somebody's going to raise their hand, and it's going to be awesome and so awkward for everyone around them. Um, right? You get into relationships because you think, this guy's not bad, this girl's not bad, or this, right? You don't, you don't get into relationships thinking, well, this is going to end uh, horribly, right? That's not how we do it. Same thing with spring break plans, right? You might have made horrible spring break plans, but at some point when you made that decision, you're like, well, I feel like this is the best option. I think this is going to be a, a good thing. I think I'm going to enjoy this. So everything we do, we are driven to make that decision based on some metric that is consciously and subconsciously happening. This is going to be the right decision. This is going to end well. So often it doesn't though, right? We, we get stuck in sin and frustrating things. We have horrible relationships at times. We have horrible classes or degree plans that we're like, wait, never mind. We're going to pivot. That happens. That's a part of life. We're going to see the Israelites do that and we're going to see kind of this formula of why they've got blinders on and, and how do we know how things are going to turn out good for us. How do we, how should we make those decisions? So First Samuel chapter 8, we're going to walk through this whole chapter. I'm going to start just verses 1 through 5, and we'll put them up on the screen if that's easy for you too. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his secondborn son, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Let's stop right there. So here's what's happening. Samuel was a, this prophet in the land of Israel, right? He was this big deal. We've kind of seen his story from literally when he was conceived uh, from his mom all the way to growing up in, in the house of the Lord. And he is this well-respected prophet and kind of judge over, spiritual priest over the land. He's got these two kids. Uh, they do not walk in his ways, meaning they're disobedient brats. They're, they're stealing money. They're bribing people. They're taking bribes. Uh, they're not good. Uh, he's really respected. His sons are not. And so the, the Israelites come to him, and I don't blame them, right? They're being pretty logical. They're putting two and two together, and they're saying, hey, wait a second, uh, you're getting old, right? So you don't have much longer and your sons are going to kind of be who becomes the next leaders after you of our nation, kind of the spiritual figureheads. Man, we don't like that. We don't like the way this is going. We're a little worried. We're a little scared. Everybody else has a king. You don't. And so the people, what is happening in these first five verses is the people are coming to Samuel and they're saying, we want a king. That's what's happening in the section. We want a king. And the context is, you, the Israelites don't have a king. They're set up to be this theocracy. They're set up to be really run by a priest. They're a people that God has said, this is my people. And so their history is a history that they've never had a king. They've had a God. All the other nations around them don't see them as, oh yeah, that's, that's the Israelites of king so-and-so because it's those are the Israelites, they worship Yahweh. They worship the, the God of Israel, right? And so God was kind of the figurehead. He was the one who wore the name tag over the nation. But here they're looking around and they're saying, we don't want that. Right? They've been in this land now. They've been in their land for about 300 to 350 years. 
they started when God went to Abraham and said, I'm going to make for you a people. They, they grew, they grew. They ended up growing under oppression in Egypt. Moses gets them out of Egypt. They wander around in the wilderness for an entire generation. Then they finally enter into the land that is theirs. They finally enter into Israel. They take their land, and they're there for 300 to 350 years. No king, just priests and judges who are responding to God. Some of them good, some of them bad, but who are speaking on behalf of God, helping shape the nation. But the point is they don't want that kind of a leader. They don't want a spiritual leader. They want an earthly leader right? They, they want a king like everybody else has, an earthly king. Look what happens, verses six through, uh, six through nine here. But this thing displeased Samuel. He's pretty offended, pretty offended by this request. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So here's what's happening in, in this text, right? You have the Israelites saying that they want to do this thing the way the world does it. Everybody else gets a king. Why do we have priests and judges and prophets? Let's just get a king like everybody else, uh, even though it was God who had consistently and miraculously delivered and protected Israel generation after generation after generation for hundreds of years. I mean, God intervened in miraculous ways historically in, in Israel, but now they're like, you know what? We just are going to do it the normal way, and we don't really want to do it God's way. And so God says, God says in this passage, he says, okay, give them what they want give them what they want. And I think that feels so unexpected to me. When I study scripture, I, 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 we know that this is not going to turn out well for them. Right? God is going to tell them this is not going to turn out well for them. Here they go. They want something that is not God's way. And yet I think it's so fascinating that here in 1 Samuel 8, God says, okay, we're going to do it your way. God, throughout the pages of scripture, interacts with his people at times in a way that he says, okay, here we go, and we'll, we'll see that a little bit later too. God gives them what they want, but Samuel warns them, right? He warns them so they know what they're signing up for. Look at verses uh, 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. 
This is really sobering, right? This is a really sobering warning where, where God is speaking through his prophet and his prophet is warning them, you guys want to do it the world's way. You want an earthly king. You want to find your security and your comparison there. It's not going to end well. He's gonna take from you. He's gonna mistreat you. Samuel warns them about having a king. He warns them, this is gonna be bad. Do they listen? No way. Look at verse 19 through the end of the chapter. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. This is a huge turning point, not just in the book of 1 Samuel here in chapter 8, but this is a huge turning point in the history of Israel, right? What's going to happen for the first time in Israel is we're going to usher in, by God's allowance, an era of kings. And so really the rest of this semester and next semester, you're going to see at least two kings play out, really three kings play out, and you're going to see what happens in those. There are some good things that happen, and there are some really, really tragic things that happen. Um, that, that's what's shifting here, right? What we see here is that despite God's warning, the people still insist, right? They say, we get it. Yeah, we know. It's, uh, I hear you, but, but this is what everyone else has, and this is what we want, and we want somebody tangible to go and fight our battles. We don't want to just trust this God that we can't see, I think it's so massively relatable, which we'll get to here in a second. Um, they want their own king, not God, right? This is not going to go well for them. Look at what goes wrong, right? So many things are going to go wrong. And it's a pattern that you're going to see um, in when, when we read, specifically when you study the Old Testament, there's a pattern where it's really easy to pick on the Israelites, Right, it's really easy to read the Old Testament and to hear about the Israelites and to think, God, these guys are just not sharp, right? Like, what, what are they doing? What are they doing? That here, God warned them, we can all see in the passenger seat, this is not going to go well. We're watching this movie play out, and it's not going to end well for them. And it's really easy throughout all the Old Testament to pick on the Israelites. I really believe the Israelites, their flaws are a mirror for us. Man, if we can't see ourselves in the mistakes of those who follow God in the Old Testament and New Testament, I, I don't think we're paying attention to Scripture deep enough. All throughout Scripture, old and new, we see people who buy into this principle, let me do it my way. I want to be God. I want to be king. I want to put my trust and my faith and my security in these earthly things that I can control that are tangible. All throughout, we see that play out. In the New Testament, we see that play out, and we see how that brings not just not just tough consequences. It brings condemnation. In Romans 1, Paul says this. We'll put it up on the screen, but Romans 1, verses 21 through 25, I want you to see the consequences of what happened. Even now, we go from the Old Testament, we fast forward thousands of years now, we're in the New Testament, Jesus come, he has made himself king over all heaven and earth, but still we see people with this same heart rejecting that king. Here's what happens. In, in verse 21, Paul says this. He says, for although they knew God, this is people who know God, right? They know better. They did not honor him as God 
or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so even in the New Testament, we see this community of people who are saying, hey, we, we know God, we know that there should be a God, but we're going to trade him for something tangible, something that we can really get our hands on, something we can really much more practically identify with. And so they're, they're trading that, and then look what happens. Therefore, God, in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. He said, okay, you want that? You want to worship that? You want to follow that? You want to pursue that? You want to find your hope and your security in that? He gives them over to that, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What we see Old and New Testament in Scripture, guys, is this reality that we have a pull, a gravitational pull to say, I want what is tangible. I want what other people have. I want what I think is going to provide me immediate gratification or immediate security from my insecurity, whatever it is. We have this gravitational pull, and we see that that pull to give into that, oftentimes the Lord says, okay, and he lets us go down that road. And going down that road, there's consequences, and there's destruction, and there's separation, and ultimately, it's this idea we see so clearly in Romans chapter 1. It brings condemnation. What separates us from God is our sin. What separates us from God is not just the things that we do that are bad. Theologically, what separates us from God is this condition that says, God, I don't want you to sit on the throne as king in my life. I want to be king, or I want to find another king that I, can, that I can put my trust in. And that's what separates us. It's really ironic because um, you, you think about it, I don't blame them, right? That there's a lot of logic to this. They're scared. There's insecurity here. There's a desire for happiness. And so they're standing, trying to make a decision, saying, well, what's gonna bring me the most happiness, the most security, the most prosperity, the Israelites in the New Testament, here in this coffee shop this morning, in my own heart? I make these decisions daily, weekly, season by season, year by year, that say, what's gonna bring me the most prosperity now? What's gonna be the most tangible? And if I don't have the eyes to see it, I'm gonna chase after things that aren't him. And the irony is this, that the most insecure and saddest places of your lives are when we look for our security or our happiness in anything but God. I I say that out of love and I hope you hear that out of love. That the times when you find yourself in the most insecure places in your life, the most fear, the most insecurity, the most unhappy are when we are chasing after our happiness and our security in these things that ultimately won't last and are not built for that. For eternity, those become consequences in our life. Um, you and I are condemned because of this sin, because of this gravitational pull towards anything but God. But God loves us. But God intervenes. But God knows that. He knows how we wander into the wrong thing. He knows that. He sees that. And the gospel is there. He He moved the gospel forward. He moved in from eternity into earth 
so that he might save a bunch of people who don't deserve it and don't oftentimes choose him. He chose us first. That's the gospel. Look a couple of chapters later in Romans 3, verse 21 through 24, we see the gospel play out, right? We see these wicked people, which I am one of and you are one of, that choose things other than God. God says, okay, then you're gonna run after that. But then look at what happens. In verse 21 of chapter three, Paul says this. He says, but now the righteousness of God, that's what we want, that's what we need in order to not be separated from eternity with God. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. So that law, which keeps God on the throne, the law that says Jesus is king of your life, the law that says this is where he belongs in your heart, this is what, where your allegiance should lie, that law that tells us to do that, that I'm constantly disobeying that law and I'm saying, yeah, I don't really think so because here is a great opportunity for me to pursue what I want to pursue and I'm going to take Jesus off. The, that law condemns me because I just can't follow it. We are broken. We, we don't follow that law naturally. Sin has separated us from that, but the righteousness of God, aside from the law, aside from our ability to keep perfect checklist of keeping Jesus on the throne, it showed up in the person of Jesus. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, not by how perfect we keep religion, not by how moral we are. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel, right? The tendency of, of all of us is to take Jesus off of the throne and say, I don't want Jesus as king. I don't want him as king. I want to be king. I want my girlfriend to be king or I want my success to be king or I want uh, this, this goal in life to be king or I want my satisfaction uh, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. I want that to be king. I want that to be where I find my security and my allegiance and that's what I pursue and that's what I'll feed. And we have a God who in his grace said, you can't choose me outside of yourself. You are lost. You are blind. And in his grace, he said, I'm going to send my son, the king, to die the death that I deserve and you deserve. And that is really good news for those who believe. For those who believe. The truth of the gospel doesn't apply to everybody. It applies here really plainly to those who believe, who say, okay, that's what I need. Not just religion, but I need Jesus. I need to surrender my heart to his allegiance. I need Jesus. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, if Jesus has been a, maybe a box that you've checked, but you've never actually put your faith in Jesus as king of your life, then would 1 Samuel 8, would Romans 1 and Romans 3, would the Spirit of God convict you so kindly in his grace to say, today is the day of salvation. Put your faith in me. Put your faith in me, the risen Savior who, who hung on a cross, died for your sins, the righteousness that we couldn't earn, he earned, paid for the unrighteousness that I bring to the table and washed it. Not just washed my past sins, washed all my sins. And now I get clothed in his righteousness, my king, undeserving. 
our saving faith in Jesus. If you're like, well, I don't know if I believe. Well, I think I believe. Well, sure, I believe. If somebody asked me if I was a Christian, I would say yes. There's lots of people who would say, yes, I'm a Christian, and yes, I believe in Jesus, but their faith isn't actually in Jesus. I want you to hear me. Just because you might answer Jesus to the question of, of how do you get to heaven, just because you might answer yes to the question, do you believe in Jesus, Listen to me, that doesn't mean your faith is in Jesus. It doesn't mean you have saving faith. Our saving faith in Jesus is the act of trusting that he is the only king we need. Let me say that again. Our saving faith in Jesus is the act of trusting that he is the only king we need. I forget that on a daily basis as a pastor I, f- I forget that on a daily basis and I try to take him off and yet he says once and for all, if I've done that, then nothing can pluck me out of his hand. And then my life after that saving faith has taken root is one step after the other of being sanctified. Going from salvation, I'm his, I'm adopted, nothing gets to change that, to now saying, God, shape me, of being a man who knows how to keep you on the throne knows how to choose you, God, as my, as my king and not what the world offers as a king. But if you haven't done that yet, don't move on to other application. I'm gonna list off some things that I think are really challenging for me in this uh, when it comes to my maturity in faith. But if you've never done that, don't move on to maturity in faith. Make sure you have a relationship with Jesus. Before you leave this room, talk to us, DM us, reach out to us, say, man, I don't know, I would say yes to the question, but I don't know if I really know what saving faith looks like. That is an unbelievably mature question. I would actually argue, if you have the, honestly, maturity to reach out to one of us on staff or somebody here around this room or your family night leader or show up to somebody who you know is walking with the Lord and you have the maturity to say, hey, I think I believe in Jesus, but I'm not sure. I don't know if I really, I don't know exactly what that means. I mean, it seems kind of ethereal. Have I done it right? If you have the faith and the maturity to say that, I think that is a work of the Holy Spirit right there, right? It's a work of the Holy Spirit saying, Cove, don't try to do this on your own. We're not designed for that. But let me move on to some hurdles. Carefully move on to some hurdles but let's say we are in Christ and we've surrendered our life, we're saved. Why do we still struggle? Why do we still struggle with taking Jesus off the throne? Three pretty quick things. One, we see it here in 1 Samuel. We get blinders on, right? We get blinders on. That's why we continue to do what we want. We, blinders are those things that you know, racehorses have that you, just, you can only see one thing. And it's a really a selfishness that so often drives us. Certainly, it drove the Israelites, right? They wanted this. I want this. No matter the consequences, no matter the circumstances, I want this. I want, I want an earthly king. We do that all the time in our life, right? And yet, discipline from God, who might say no, is actually an incredibly loving thing. Romans 1, right? What did God do? God actually said, okay, you want that. You got blinders on. You just are dogmatically, this is what I want. You got, well, Romans 1 said, okay, I'm gonna let you run. Uh, my Uh, dog, Desi, when she was a puppy, we would take her on walks, and she was strong. She was really strong. I had to take her on a walk. She would just 
pull my wife's arm out of socket. And so it was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to this leash. And we, our house was just one street over from a pretty busy road. And so when we would do a lap, you know, when we first started doing it, we would end up walking down this pretty busy road on the sidewalk. And man, she would see people and things on the other side of a four lane road with cars coming quickly and everything in her wanted to jet across that street right, which would have been a disaster for her, would have been heartbreaking for us, and so I am, I mean, I I am choking my dog, holding her back, because she so badly wants to run into traffic, and and yet, how unloving would it have been if I would have just said, okay, go for it. God, in his infinite love and wisdom and kindness, still says, and times, okay, go for it, but that should scare you, In 1 Samuel, they should be scared. Oh, no. I mean, they are warned. Oh, no. God's going to let us have what we want. What we want is dangerous. What we want is running in front of traffic. This is a warning to us. This is a warning to you, to me. What are the things that you say, this is what I want, and I know it's not what God wants, but I just want this, and we're tugging against the leash. What are those things that the Holy Spirit convicts you of that you know sitting in this room right now this is what my heart is tugging for and I want it and I know it's selfish but God just let me have it. How unloving, how gracious is it that God might hold that leash? That, that maybe some of those things you want, you just keep running into a wall. Maybe that's actually an incredibly kind God that's not giving you some of those things because he sees better, because he knows better. The second thing is not just we get blinders on with our selfishness but tied to that, we get so enticed by comparison. It's not just our selfishness, it's our envy, right? It's, it produces the same selfishness, but instead of blinders, we've just got our head on a swivel. Well, look what she has. Well, look what he has. Well, look what they have. Well, I, I want what they want, and we see that in 1 Samuel. I mean, this, this nation is driven by that. We see that in our own hearts, if we're honest. Look at what everyone else has. Look at the relationships that they have. I, I don't want to not have that. I don't want to be stuck with no date to formal. I don't want to be stuck when everyone else is talking about their guy or their girl without that, right? It drives us. Body image becomes such a massive thing in comparison. The world you guys live in, it's so difficult. I mean, you guys are surrounded by bodies and you're constantly comparing yourself to them I want that. I want to look the way that she looks. I want to look the way that, even if it's not actually tangibly, it's just Instagram or we are surrounded by images and we say, that's what I want. I I don't really want what you say, God. I don't really value enough what my king says my body image and where my worth and where my value is. I want that. Success is the same way. Sex is the same way. Even just fun just, just this, this idea of, man, I want to live college and I want my weekends to just be constantly fun because look how fun that is. Guys, I've been doing ministry a long time and, man, I know so many 30-year-olds that pursued so many weekends of fun and they are some of the most unhappy, joyless men and women I know because that fun didn't bear fruit That fun just created weeds in their life that they took out of college into being a young adult, that they took into their marriage. 
And we have a God who redeems, and we have a God who cleans, and we have a God who heals and restores. Make no mistake, but as a warning, what are those comparisons that are drawing you into traps? Those hurdles, those relationships being king, that image that you're pursuing being king, that immediate gratification being king. And and the last hurdle is this. Um, Not just we get stuck in our envy and our selfishness, but we get stuck in our fear, right? We get stuck in the logic of the world. And I think this is a hard one. I think this is really sneaky, but I want to put it before you because I want want you to use it to identify, is is that happening? Is Is that tripping you up? That the logic of the world, I mean, the Israelites, it makes logical sense. Everybody else has a king. They don't. They've got like a priest prophet guy. They don't have a military commander. They don't have a king unifying. They don't have like an earthly representative who really goes forward in a battle or in conquering or things like that. Logically, I get it. There's a lot of things like that in your life where you're going to make compromises. You're going to cut corners because, well, logically, why not? Right? Why not? There's a If you're an economics major or business major, you are probably familiar with this concept of sunken cost fallacy, right? The sunken cost fallacy is the idea of you hit diminishing returns in an investment. So you have an investment and you've invested money in it and you've sunken cost in that. And then there's this thing called sunken cost fallacy that really ties to investors' emotions where, well, I've already invested this much money in it and now it's diminishing returns, which means it's not producing a good gain. What I'm investing is way more than what I'm getting out of this. And so it's sunken cost and it's not head, but you've already spent so much time and energy. And you see businesses all the time hold on to the past, right? You see whole companies, whole industries go out of business because they couldn't adjust, right? The digital camera companies, right? Polaroid film companies just didn't adjust. And they said, no, but this is what we do. And we're going to hang on to this. And we've already invested so much time. We do the same thing in our life, right? It becomes a hurdle for us where we take Jesus off of the throne. Let me play it out. Relationships, right? Which is, which is something we've talked a good amount about. Um, all the time we think, well, I, I'm already pretty deep into this relationship. And I know a lot of people, it's like, well, I'm getting close to graduating. I've been dating this person for a long time. Do they really treat me well? No. But the idea of breaking up and starting fresh and going back to zero, I've already got years invested or months and months invested in this relationship. And so there's this sunken cost fallacy that keeps us stuck with false kings in our life and these compromises that God says this isn't going to end well, but we have a hard time removing ourselves from it. Same thing with our lifestyle, right? You might be in a lifestyle in college where maybe the first year or maybe honestly the first month of school, you set some patterns in place and you're like, well, yeah, I mean, I know I should get out of these patterns. I know I should get out of this lifestyle. I know I've kind of got this sunken cost and maybe a a friend group or a lifestyle that is just, I know it's not going to end well, but I've already invested I'm already, I'm already known here. This is already kind of the patterns of my lifestyle. And if I back out now and reset, that's just going to be a lot. So I'm just going to stay in and hope maybe I can slowly steer it out. And it's a fallacy that ends up bankrupting industries and ends up bankrupting people as well. This idea of fear of I don't want to start over. I don't want to reject. I, and so because of that, we'll compromise. I, I don't, I'm not trying to scare anyone out of 
relationships or anything like that. I just, I want you to hear out of love. I know a lot of college students and young adults who compromised a ton and they said, you know what, this is good enough. This relationship, this lifestyle, this pursuit, this is good enough. I don't want to start over. I don't want to go back to square one. And they said it was good enough. And I've been doing ministry for 20 years and I've watched a lot of those decisions then turn into just devastation in their life. God's warning us because he loves us. And he says, don't make anything other than me king. Don't find your identity, your security, your joy. Don't find those things in anything other than me. And then let those relationships and those career pursuits and that fun that you have, let those be overflows from a relationship with Jesus Christ as king of your heart. You're all I need. You're better than everything else. But God, help make my heart believe that because it's so easy to forget that. That's my hope. Real tangibly, getting God's word to remind yourself of what is true and who belongs on the throne and also get in community that loves Jesus. A bunch of people who are all saying, yes, Jesus is the one who, who deserves to sit on my th- in the throne of my life. That's what family nights are. That's what small groups are. There's so many other ministries around here. That's what those are for, is to sit around other people in a living room or in a Bible study or in, a, in the commons and just say, okay, how? Help me. Brother, sister, help me keep Jesus on the throne of my heart. Help me see when I'm off. Help me return. Help me know that he is better. If you walk out of here and say, yeah, I'm gonna do this, and you try to go solo, you are, it's not gonna end well for you. You're designed to be in this kind of gospel-centered community to keep Jesus at the throne of your heart. I love you. Let me pray for you, and then we'll keep worshiping. Father, um, we love you, and we're grateful for you. We're thankful for your word and how crazy relevant story of Israelites thousands of years ago, how just massively front page news that is for me and my heart. Even this week, God, as I struggle to still be a man and a pastor who keeps you as the priority, but God, you still love us. You're still kind to us. You've, let to, you've, you've yet to let go of that leash and we're so grateful, God. Would you bring us closer to you would you convict us of the hurdles that we've created in our own life? Convict us of, of how we get blinders on or how we get driven by comparison or, or how we just so deep into maybe mistakes we've made that we just don't know how to get out. God, would you give us the freedom and the faith to take those steps one step at a time and would you remind my brothers and sisters in this room that they are not alone. Your spirit goes before us. For those who are in Christ, your spirit lives within us. Give us the faith to listen but also you've given us a family. You've given us a family of other believers to walk with, to sharpen each other. And so God, show us what that looks like. Take us deep and remind us how much you are better than everything the world has to offer. And God, we need you to make our heart believe that. In the name of Jesus, amen.